John 7. John chapter 7. And let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, how true are those words that we have just sung? How many of us come this morning sinful, unworthy? How many of us come burdened down by, by sin, by fear, by doubts, struggling? And yet, Father, even as we have just sung, to Christ I fly. On him rely. His grace is all I need. Father, this morning as we gather as a church, we proclaim that the grace of God is all that we need. We confess that, that we are not good enough. We are not strong enough. We need the grace of God every hour. We need your new mercies every morning. Even this morning as we turn our attention to this passage we're so easily distracted. We're so blinded. Father, open our eyes to the truth of your word. May your spirit work through the word in each and every one of our lives. May you convict us. May you challenge us. May you change us for your glory. May we see what you have for us. And may you be honored in this time. Give me boldness, authority to proclaim the truth of the word of God with clarity this morning. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever been in the wrong place at the wrong time? Sounds like Todd's got a story without that with his neighbor in his car. <laughs> Maybe he can tell us later. One time when Chris and I were in Indianapolis, we were working at Good News Ministries, and, and we lived across the street. And so we were walking over to work on this day, and, and we crossed the street, and there were two streets that we had to cross. So we lived diagonal from where we needed to go. So we had to cross one street and then cross another to get there. And so we, we'd crossed the one street, and we're standing on the corner waiting to, to cross the other street. And it's Washington Street that we have to cross, a, a busy intersection that goes right through the middle of Indianapolis. And so we're standing here, and, and then we have to wait for the light to turn, and, and in the distance, we hear some sirens. And we're waiting for the light to turn, and, and as it gets closer, it, it becomes clear that, there, that there's a lot of sirens. This isn't just one or two. And as it, as it comes down, and, and we start to see the lights, it, be, it becomes clear that they're chasing a car. There's a car in front of them. And then there's probably 15, 20 cars behind them chasing them, police cars. And they're flying down Washington Street, and they're coming towards the corner where we are standing. And Krista at the time was pregnant with the twins. And so we're standing there on the corner, and this is all happening so fast, trying to figure out what in the world is going on. And they're about to fly past us, and at the last second, this car decides to turn right there at Washington Street. And so he turns last second, he, his, his uh, wheels are screeching, and, and he's sliding, and he slides right at us. And we, we jump back. And the car comes within probably five feet of us. 
before he takes off and then the car, the, all 20 cop cars turn and follow him and by that point we had backed well away. We were in the wrong place at the wrong time. It, just, it came out of nowhere. We weren't expecting it. Thankfully, it missed us. It could have been bad. There's another time when I was in Indianapolis when I was in the right place at the right time. There was a restaurant there known as the Country Kitchen. And it's this little hole-in-the-wall place you'd never go to unless someone who knew about it took you. Uh, you'd probably think the building was abandoned. Um, but we, we, it, was, it was amazing food. And so we were going there, and, and it was one of those places you walk in, and they've got pictures of everyone who's eaten there, all the famous people. They had President Obama, President Bush, all these athletes. And so I was meeting a friend there for lunch one day, and we're sitting there, and we're eating, and, and we look up, and we realize that table right there beside us, that is, that's Reggie Wayne. If you don't know who Reggie Wayne is, he was a receiver, a wide receiver for the Indianapolis Colts. Um, I don't know if he's a Hall of Famer yet, but he probably will be if not. Um, but he, uh, he, was, he was well known, well known, Reggie Wayne. And, and, and so we waited till he was done with his meal, and then we get up and got a picture with him. And it was just by chance. I didn't know he was going to be there. I just happened to be at the right place at the right time to get my picture with Reggie Wayne. It was a neat experience. How many times, like Todd mentioned, do we find ourselves in the right place at the right time, in God's perfect time? Because God knows exactly what he is doing. As we turn our attention to our passage this morning, we find that Jesus is always exactly where God wants him. He's in the right place at the right time. He's never at the wrong time. As we work our way through this, there's several questions that we will answer. The first question that we'll see is, who is Jesus? Then we'll see, what is Jesus doing? And finally, why is Jesus here? The first thing we see in the first 13 verses is who, who is Jesus? And you'll notice in these first 13 verses, there are four groups that, that answer that question, who they think Jesus is. But first, the first few verses kind of set the scene, what's going on. It starts out after these things. Chapter 7 obviously follows chapter 6. Chapter 6 was, was cover, covered about one, uh, two days uh, as this crowd is following Jesus, as Jesus is teaching. But after these things, after Jesus' ministry in Galilee, after his rejection in Capernaum by the group, where, where, as we saw last week, where the majority of his disciples say, I'm done, and a large amount leave. After, at that same time, Peter's confession where they say, where else will we go, Lord? Of course we'll follow you. You are the Christ. So at this point, it's been about six months since then. We know that because it tells us in verse 2 that it's the Jews' Feast of Tabernacle. So we can take the Passover where they were and the Jews' Feast of Tabernacle, and we know it's about six months so it's been six months, but this is what's interesting. Look at this next phrase. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. That's a fascinating phrase. I, I was just looking at that, studying that this week, that, the phrase, Jesus walked, because just a few verses earlier in chapter 6, verses 66, what does it say? It says that many of his disciples, disciples did not walk with him. They walked away. 
They left, and yet Jesus does not immediately abandon them. He does not leave them. Jesus walks among them. He stays in that same area where he's been, where his disciples have abandoned him. He stays there, and he walks, and he interacts, and he stays among them. He walks in Galilee. He stays there. He keeps ministering. Part of that reason, we see at the end of verse 1, he did not want to walk in Judea. Why? Because the Jews sought to kill him. That's pretty, pretty clear. They've made their intentions clear. We see that first in chapter 5, verses 16 to 18, when Jesus heals the man at the, the, the pool of Bethesda. They want to kill him. In fact, in chapter 7, verse 25, the crowd even says, as we'll get there, some of them from Jerusalem said, is this not he whom they seek to kill? This is something that everybody knows. The Jews want to kill Jesus. It is well known. It is out there in the public. People are discussing it. And so Jesus stays away. So we know where we are. We're in Galilee. Jesus has stayed there. He's continued ministering among those who've abandoned him. It's about six months after the end of chapter 6. In fact, chapter 2 tells us, or verse 2 tells us, it's at the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles. We know where we are. We know when we are. I think it's important here to also pause and to note the Jewish Feast of of tabernacles. This is the backdrop of this passage. This is where this takes place. It's the thing that takes Jesus from Galilee eventually to Jerusalem, to Judea. It's the reason he goes. And it's the time of year. The Feast of Tabernacles, also called the Feast of Booths, it's a week-long celebration. It'd be similar to our Thanksgiving. It's a harvest time festival. And what they would do is, is all the, the, the Jews would come into Jerusalem around it and they would camp out in these makeshift tents for a week. And the point was to commemorate their trek through the wilderness after God had led them across the Red Sea. They're remembering how God led them out, how God provided for them in the wilderness, how God continued to lead them. And, it's not only remembering what God then did then, but it's a harvest celebration. They're remembering how God has provided now. And there's a future aspect to it, as they're looking forward to how God will provide and meet all their needs in the coming kingdom. That's what's going on here. But there's an interesting phrase that John includes here before Feast of Tabernacles, he says, the Jews, Feast of Tabernacles. He could have just said it was the Feast of Tabernacles and we would have known what he was saying. But he says, now the Jews, Feast of Tabernacles. Majority of the time in the book of John, when you see the term the Jews, it is negative. It's referring to those who are against Jesus. Those who are, are blinded by their tradition and they can't see Jesus, who he is. I think it's interesting that John includes that there. It was the Jews' Feast of Tabernacle. 
It could be an indication, a reminder, a clue that the Jews had traded genuine worship for empty ritual long before Christ came. Their rejection of Christ was not something new. It was something that they got lost in a long time ago. It's no longer God's Feast of Tabernacles. It's now the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles. So they're getting ready to go. Verse 3, his brothers. This is the first group. We see their view of who Jesus is. We'll see his brothers. We'll see Jesus. We'll see the Jews, or the religious leaders, and the people. These four groups tell us what they think about Jesus. And the first we come to is his brothers. They say to him, depart from here and go into Judea. It's time to go to this feast, this celebration. So, so come with us that your disciples may see the works that you are doing. No one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. And that's where they go wrong. Jesus is not seeking to be known. He's not seeking his own glory. He's already stated he's seeking to make the Father known, not himself. He's not seeking fame, he's seeking followers. His brothers missed that. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Come with us to Jerusalem where, where everyone is gathered and it's the biggest stage and you can put on a show and everyone will then follow you. Verse 5 clues us into to kind of their motive. Even his brothers did not believe in him. Even his brothers did not believe in him. It's a fascinating statement. Even the brothers of Jesus Christ did not believe in him. Think about the family dynamics there. To not believe Jesus, not only do they not have to believe Jesus, they have to not believe Mary. I'm sure Mary has told them, this is what happened. This is who he is. But they don't believe. It doesn't necessarily reveal their, their, their motive, why they are saying this, why they want Jesus to do this. There's a couple possibilities. First, they could be mocking him. They could be saying, you're, you're so great, Jesus. Why don't you come with us and, and, and get a crowd? Spread your fame. If you think that you are so special, now's your chance. Or it could be that they've not made up their minds yet. It could be that like the rest of the many of the other Jews in the area who, who have left Jesus, they misunderstand him. If he is who he says he is, then they think that he will be some kind of a political or a social leader. And they want him to come because they want to have the social status of being next to Jesus. They know he's going to be celebrity when he walks into to Jerusalem. People are going to flock to him and I'm with him. They're either mocking him or they're looking for personal gain next to him. Either way, they don't believe him. They think he's a phony, a fake, someone that we can take advantage of to, to laugh at or to advance our own careers. But then we see Jesus. 
Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. My time has not yet come. Jesus here is on a mission. And he is conscientious of God's perfect timing. It is not my time yet to go up to Jerusalem. Your time is always ready. You you can go at any time. But it's not my time. Like the crowds of John 6, Jesus' brothers want Jesus on their terms and their timing for their purpose. But Jesus is not concerned about their goals. He's on a divine schedule with a divine purpose. And his time has not yet come. I'm doing something greater, guys. I'm doing something greater. I'm on a mission, and it's not yet my time. Jesus goes on, the world cannot hate you. Right? You're of the world. The world doesn't hate its own. The world cannot hate you. But it hates me. Because I testify of it that its works are evil. They hate me because I testify that its works are evil. The darkness hates the light. We saw that in John 3 as Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in in verse 19. John 3.19 says this. This is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. see, the Jews hate Jesus not because he claims to be the Messiah, but because he is not the Messiah they want. He does not meet their expectation. He tells them not what they want to hear. He tells them the truth. He tells them that that even their righteousness as Jews, even though they were circumcised on the eighth day according to the law, even though they've come to all these festivals, even your righteousness is as filthy rags. Even you need the grace of God. And they don't want to hear that. So they hate him. You go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast. For my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. His brothers don't believe him. Jesus knows who he is. He's sent by God. He's on a mission. He is the Messiah. He's come to bring the light. And the darkness hates him. She comes to verse 10 then. His brothers had gone up. Then he also went up to the feast. So he does end up going, not openly, but as it were, in secret. Contrary to his brother's wishes that, that he would come in in fanfare, he sneaks in quietly in harmony with God's plan. Then we see the Jews, the religious leaders. What do they think about Jesus? They sought him at the feast. They said, where is he? Well, why is it that they're seeking him so fervently? We already know. We saw in verse 1. They want to kill him. Everyone knows they want to kill him. And they know because he's a Jew, he will be at this feast. And so we are going to seek him and we are going to kill him. They think he's dangerous. They think he's a blasphemer. 
Then verse 12, we see the crowds, the people. There was much complaining among the people. I want to pause there on that word complaining. Don't think necessarily complaining like what we do, how we use the word, but think of more whispering, talking in secret. Right? When you complain to someone about someone else, you do it quietly because you don't want that other person to hear. That's kind of the idea. Here they are whispering, they are talking in secret concerning Christ. Jesus is the talk of the town. Everyone is talking about him. The leaders are seeking him to kill him. The people are curious about him. Some said he's good. Some said no, to the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Some say he's good. Some say he's bad. Really, they both come far short of who he actually is. Jesus' brothers think he's a phony. Jesus knows who he is. He's the Christ. The religious leaders think he's a blasphemer and dangerous, and the people are still undecided. They're not sure. So we come to verse 14. Now the question becomes, well, what is Jesus doing? Why Jesus, knowing that they want to kill him, why is he going? Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. Seems an odd thing to do if you know that they're trying to kill you. To go to a temple where the majority of the people are to gather a crowd. I thought Jesus went up in secret. Well, we must remember that Jesus' main goal is not secrecy, but obedience to God. And now his time has come to go up. It has come to speak. So Jesus went up into the temple. He taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters, having never studied? How does this man have such authority? He didn't go to, to one of the famous elite schools. He didn't learn from a beloved and respected teacher, and yet he speaks with such authority. How is it? He's just a common man. Well, Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. You see, there's an assumption behind the words of the crowd. How does this man not know letters, having never studied? What authority is he speaking on? He didn't learn from, from this leader. He didn't learn from this school. What tradition does he come from? This, this, this Jesus must not respect tradition. He's a rogue teacher and therefore dangerous. And notice how Jesus answers them. My doctrine is not mine, but he who sent me. I am not a rogue teacher. I'm not making up my own doctrine. My doctrine comes from my Father who sent me. God himself. Jesus speaks with authority because he is sent by one with authority. Verse 17, if anyone wills, 
to do his will, the will of the one who sent me, he shall know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God or whether I speak in my own authority. I come as one who is sent. I come with authority. I am not a rogue teacher. I'm speaking with authority because I've been sent by one with authority. And you can know that. Anyone who wills to do his will, it's not about works, but faith. Anyone who wills to do his will, anyone who with faith will believe God and will be fundamentally committed to his will, then they will know that his doctrine is true. If you really want to know the truth, if you really search, if you are really willing to listen, to believe, then you too will know what I am teaching, that it is true. The truth is not hidden. It's not some deeper knowledge that must be sought. It is right in front of you if you will just believe. I'm not speaking in my own authority. In fact, verse 18, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. It's kind of a dig at those teachers who are accusing him. You guys are seeking your own authority. You're seeking your own glory. You're, you're, you're speaking on your own. I'm speaking from God. The problem here is that tradition has become not a guide or a guardian to the truth, but a distraction from the truth. The tradition has gotten in the way so they cannot see clearly and Jesus is saying, if you will just believe, just believe, just listen, just hear me out, you will see that what I say is true. He seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true. I'm not seeking my own glory. No unrighteousness is in him. Jesus is pure in character and motive. He's just teaching the truth of the word of God. Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. You're, you're all sinners. Romans 3.23, you can't even live up to the standards of the law that you love so much. And yet you seek to kill me. Which is actually evidence of your law breaking because it's against the law to kill. Exodus 20.13, you shall not murder. So what is Jesus here to do? He's here teaching in the temple. He's here testifying to his father. He's also confronting them. He's not holding anything back. The people answer him. They, they, they accuse him. You have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Which is kind of a strange thing to say because in just a few verses they're going to say, isn't this the one who they're trying to kill? You just said, no one's trying to kill me. Who's seeking to kill you? You have a demon. Sadly, it's not the only time that Jesus will be charged with having a demon. Basically saying, you're crazy. Who do you think you are? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work and you all marveled. 
The context of this passage makes it clear that Jesus is referring back to John 5, verses 1 to 18. It's the last miracle he did in Jerusalem when he healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. And he healed him on the Sabbath. Jesus is here referring back to that. That was over a year ago. And that's what they're fixating on. That's what they're stuck on. That's what they still want to kill him. I did one work, and you all marvel. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. All he's saying there is that Moses formalized circumcision into the law, but it goes all the way back to Abraham before him. But it was given to you, circumcision, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken... Are you angry with me? Because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? You see, there could be a conundrum. The Jewish boy had to be circumcised on the eighth day. But what if the eighth day falls on a Sabbath? Then do you do the work to physically circumcise him? Therefore, Breaking the Sabbath? Or do you keep the Sabbath and not circumcise until the next day? Well, they had justified it and, and, and they would circumcise him on the Sabbath. It was allowed in order to keep the law in their minds. Circumcision was considered an improvement. It was obeying the law. It was making this child um, part of the covenant people of God. It was, it was improving. And what Jesus is saying here is that you're okay with that improvement, but you're not okay with me making someone completely well on the Sabbath. In fact, it takes me less effort to speak and tell someone to get up and walk than it takes you to take a knife and do the act of circumcision. And yet you're mad with me. You want to kill me for obeying God rather than man. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. They're judging with an agenda, and therefore they are unable to see the truth that is right in front of them. The sad irony of this whole thing is that they are celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles of Booths. They are celebrating a feast where they look forward to God's provision in the kingdom, and they don't even realize that Jesus would give them that kingdom if they would just believe he is standing right in front of them and they are too blind to see it. So who is Jesus? What is he doing? He's teaching, he's testifying, he's confronting. Why is he here? Why do this now? Verse 25, some of them from Jerusalem said, is this not he who they seek to kill? This, this is the man that they seek to kill actively. We all know about this. 
But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing. Do the rulers know something that we don't know? Do they know that this is the Christ and therefore they change their mind about him? Why with so much at stake would he stand up and speak so boldly, so publicly? Because the promise of persecution cannot stop the progress of truth. Jesus speaks with boldness because Jesus is exactly where God wants him and he's exactly at the right time and he's going to speak exactly the truth of God. He speaks with boldness because he'd rather obey God than man. They go on though. They see him on the right track in verse 26, but then they say, well... We know where this man is from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he's from. It's kind of the same reasoning we saw back in chapter 6, where where those in Capernaum say, don't we know this man's mother? Don't we know his brothers, his father? We know his family. He can't be the Messiah. It's kind of what this crowd is saying. We know where he's from. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Then Jesus cried out. I love that word, cried out. He is not, he's not holding back here. They were whispering about him at first. He's not whispering here. He is speaking out loudly. He's teaching in the temple. You both know me and you know where I'm from. You think you know me. But I've not come of myself. He who sent me is true, whom you do not know. You speak of what you do not know. I speak of what I know. I come as a witness. I am sent. I speak the truth. I know him. For I am from him and he sent me. There's a bit of an invitation in there, isn't there? I know him. And he sent me. And you can know him. you must listen. You must believe. We see the result. Therefore, they sought to take him. Many in the crowd jumps in on this. They seek to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. No one laid a hand on him. It it kind of hints to the, the sovereignty of God and the timing of Jesus' ministry, but also the providence of God and the completion of that mission. He's on a timetable. He's going to accomplish the purposes of God. And no one can stop that. But not everyone tried to take him. Many of the people believed in him and said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man does? They saw the signs. They listened to the message. They believed the truth. Who is Jesus? He's the Savior of the world. What is he doing? He's teaching the truth. And why is he doing it? To save souls. Jesus has a purpose 
He has a reason for his coming, and that purpose underlies everything that he does. Jesus knows who he is, he knows what he is doing, and he knows why he's doing it. And every step that Jesus takes is purposeful. Every word that Jesus speaks is measured, is purposeful. Every soul he saves is chosen by God. He's on a mission. As we come to the end of this passage, I think there's two points of application. There's application for those who are unbelievers and there's application for those who are believers. Those who are unbelievers, the application is this, as I mentioned earlier, that you would know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that you would believe in him. You see, Jesus died for you. Every step he took in his ministry leading up to the cross to the resurrection, to his ascension, was for you. He bore your burden, your penalty. Even as we celebrate, as you may have watched earlier, as we celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper, as we remember what he has done for us on the cross, he's done that for you. As you come to the end of this passage, there's two responses to Jesus. Some hate him, as he said they would, and try to take him and kill him. And some love him and believe. And the question this morning is, if you've never placed your faith in Christ, what is your response to Jesus? You see, you cannot not have a response. Because you will one day stand before him, and you will one day give an account, and you will answer what do you believe about Jesus? Todd mentioned earlier about those chance encounters, being in the right place at the right time. Maybe you're in the right place at the right time this morning. Maybe God has you here for a reason. Maybe he wanted you to hear this message, to turn from your sin and to turn to Christ for salvation. And if you've never done that, today's the day. Open your eyes. Even as we sing, in just a second, we're going to close with the song, Christ is enough for me. And as we close with that song, if you're not sure if you're saved, if you have any questions, won't you come forward? I'm not going to try to force you to make a decision you don't want to make. I simply want to take the word of God, and I want to answer your questions, and I want to point you to Christ. For those of you who are believers, who are in Christ, if you've placed your faith in Christ, do you know who you are? Do you know what you're doing? Do you know why you're doing it? Your primary identity is not your last name. It's not your occupation. Your primary identity is the fact that you are in Christ. And therefore, your primary purpose is to make disciples, and your primary reason is for the glory of God. And that must affect every step that we take, every word that we speak. If that is who I am, and that is what I am to be doing, then that must be what I am doing. 
then that means that every interaction in the grocery store is not by chance. Every interaction with a coworker is not by chance. Every conversation with my kids and with my wife and with my neighbor is not by chance. I am on a mission. I have a purpose to make disciples. I'm an ambassador for Christ, as we saw in 2 Corinthians 5 last week in Sunday school. That others may know. Jesus knew who he was. He knew what he was doing. He knew why he was doing it. Do you? Maybe you've gotten off track. Maybe you need to refocus this morning. If that's the case, as we sing, I would invite you to just sit in your chair, close your eyes, and spend some time in prayer. Come forward. I would love to pray with you. Go find a room in the church somewhere. If God is working, do not ignore it.